Welcome back, everyone, to the Caught Red Podcast. As always, we are your host. I am Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. And we are just two dog lovers here to talk some true crime, horror movies, and of course, our dogs, too. As many of you know, we were at CrimeCon, and the doggos were on their own vacation, too. We try to share pictures of them while they were having a good time. And while we were having a good time, and I, I mean, it was fun. I loved it. Good getaway. Great to stay with Vor and Kels, but I'm happy to be home with all of our critters and no traffic for two hours. That might be the best part. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so much traffic. Oh my God. When we left Vor and Kelsey's house Monday morning. The estimated arrival from their house, which is outside of Orlando, to the airport was like an hour 45, but I swore it took at least two hours to get there. Yeah, originally, you know, it told us to get on Interstate 4, but we saw Interstate 4, and it was... It was backed up onto, like, the main roads. So I went another route, which said it was 30 minutes faster than that route. It lied. It might have been true, honestly, though. I don't know. We had that long light that we were stuck at. And then, and then, so Jesse can see the fire truck coming from behind us. It's two lanes at the moment. And so everyone is veering outward to let the fire truck go up the middle, which was very odd. And then a damn minivan decided to follow and cut through traffic the same way the fire truck, like cutting off all these cars. (laughs) Yeah. What? What is that nonsense? People are crazy. Well, we know that. We talk about them all the time. But Crime Calm is very fun. Good yeah. experience. What did you like about the first day? First day, first day. Oh. Prosecutors that, podcast. That was probably my favorite day was Friday. I'm going to listen to the prosecutors I podcast. I love the prosecutors. They were really cool. They were really smart. They knew their shit. Great talkers. Oh, my gosh. What they did doing their 10 rules was the very first episode. So they go through, like, what they did there okay. was literally, like, their very first episode they had ever recorded together. Because I actually listened to that one today. I've never listened to them from the beginning. I've always just kind of, like, randomly picked one with, like, an interesting topic. But now that I've actually seen them live and just seen that they're literally just the same people like they're really cool like a guy was wearing a cthulhu shirt and that's apparently brett the co-host's like favorite thing in the whole world and he's like dude your shirt is so awesome like they're so down to earth so i was like all right i'm gonna start this one and they know their shit oh yeah they're both attorneys so they're able to talk case law like way better than we're able to talk case law obviously oh my god yes they and they put it yeah. in a way that we can understand it too. That was gonna be, that was literally what I was gonna say. A lot of the time when they do cases, they do it from both sides defense and the prosecution. But if there's ever technical technical terms, they break it down so like everyday people like us can be like, Oh, that's what that means. I like how they said that the justice system is an imperfect system that delivers imperfect results. Mm-hmm. So if y'all need a new podcast to go check out. Yeah. And that kind of relates to my case today, actually, because they said someone can be convicted of killing someone and be innocent. That's the whole 
problem with the imperfect system. Mm-hmm. And then we listened to Paul Holes a couple times yes. throughout our stay. And if you don't know, it's hashtag hot for holes. And Mary Jane, you know, you know that. You know, you, girl, girl, you know. He talked about his white will case, which is the one that he is haunted by, wants to solve the most going years back into his career. Uh, We also got to see a little bit of how facial reconstruction works. We did leave a little bit earlier from that one and got food, but it was still kind of cool. And we couldn't really see, I wish they were up on like a platform or something or had larger screens for, because I mean, everybody's sitting at the same eye level. And I didn't want to be rude and like stand up and get in somebody's way just to see what they were doing. But also the cool thing about them was how, they would show their progress, but while they were inside the little podcaster's hall, they were also still working on a face in there. So every day that passed, the the gentleman, I can't think of his name, but he was doing the facial reconstruction as the days were going on. So uh, by the end of Sunday night, he had an actual face. Another one of our favorites was James McGee. Hell yeah, bought his book. He was... On site in Waco for 51 51 straight days, days, right? Whenever, uh, what's his name? David Koresh. Yes, David Koresh. And what is it called? The Branch Davidians. Yeah, she knows more than me, even though we were downstairs re-watching the the Taylor Kitsch kind of miniseries. I said, that's the worst I've ever seen him. And he's a very attractive man, in my opinion. With that mullet? (laughs) Yeah. And the... But James, Crazy serial, serial killer yeah, glasses. James McGee is a badass, though. I he, he was awesome. He got the call after four federal agents were killed on scene, and he went down there and did his business. Yeah, this man stood up in the audience. Of course, at like 10 to 20 minutes before the end of that session, most of the speakers left open for anyone that had questions. All the questions were really good, except for this one man wasn't even really asking a question. He was like preaching. Why? Why this? Why that? Why they do this? Why? Blah, blah, blah. And and the James McGee, he was just like, listen, man, I got a call. Federal agents were killed. My job was to go in after that point. What happened beforehand, I had no part of. I was doing my job right then and there. Drop it. He pretty much was like, I get it. Drop it. Mm-hmm. He shut him down. I was like, hell yeah. And then we saw Kristen Thorne Friday, and she she was a reporter that was covering Gabby Petito's case. And when that was picking up and getting in and going, she had gone to her producer and said, hey, I really want to just focus on missing people. And he said, go ahead. And so she's got a series on Hulu called Missing that I would like to start watching as well. Let's do it. The one I liked on Sunday was the defense attorney for like Aaron Hernandez and Casey Anthony and Bill then, Spector. Yeah, what's her name? Linda Baden or yeah. Baden? So I liked my favorite part of that one was afterwards when they opened it up for questioning and this guy came up and asked her which case surprised her that she won pretty much. Mm-hmm. And she said, none of them. I'm that good. Yes. <laughs> I loved her. She was that good. She, she was awesome at speaking. She broke everything down. And 
during trials, she would always do like in-person demonstrations. Demonstrations, yeah, that showed like exactly what happened or. Mm-hmm. Her husband, I had a because he was sitting in the audience. And I was like, man, his name looks familiar. And I looked him up and he's actually a medical examiner and he worked on some pretty big profile cases. Like uh, he testified at the OJ Simpson trial. He was on Phil Spector with his wife, who, you know, obviously. And then a few other ones that he did his own like investigation on. So like uh, Jeffrey Epstein, we could go down that rabbit hole one day, I guess. But uh, he seemed like a pretty cool guy himself. And uh, then we also had the Bone Valley podcast guy. Oh, yeah. That was awesome. That's something else I want to start listening to. It's a nine-part series, and it goes over the murder of Michelle Schofield. And that is a hot mess and very similar to what Jesse's going to talk about, too, today. Just know that her husband has been proven innocent, but is still in prison. 36 years now. Yep, yep. Uh, And then Paul Holes also was the moderator for... Y'all, I know, like I'm asking you, like you're going to answer me, but I know most of you have watched CSI Miami. And Eva LaRue was on that show. She was also on a... What are those called? Soap operas. Well, she, for like 12 years, had this stalker, and he just kept escalating more and more and more, like saying things like, I'm going to kidnap you, rape you, dismember you. And she was like, holy shit. And then they started sending letters like that to her daughter, and he kept finding them no matter where they moved. Yeah, it went from letters in fan mail which her manager would give her, she would get open like one out of every five letters. And it just so happened that his letter was one of them. Then it escalated yep. to he found her address and and was mailing his letters there. Oh, and then he got a hold of her daughter's high school, high school's phone number and was calling her acting like he was her father and told her to meet him outside the school. Like how crazy. But the FBI solved it after 12 years because of genetic genealogy. So another big win there. There were just, there was a lot. I think those were my favorites besides obviously watching the canines on Saturday. Can't forget about the canine demo. They're so sweet babies. That was so cool. Mm Mm-hmm. We didn't want to like get too into everything because apparently Jesse's got another long one, which is yeah. no shocker here. Needless to say, we'll be back for 2024 in Nashville, hopefully. So You think so? I think so. Because that's just a drive and we can, I can get a lot more things to bring home because it goes into a car, not an airplane. <laughs> True. And we got to find a pet friendly place to stay for Derby and you need to get her licensed or whatever to be a service animal so we you are can just bring start, her to the con. We will start now on her training so she'll act like a service dog. There you go. Because we said this would be the last trip we take without, you know, leaving her behind. Cause she, she's, I can't go into it. I'll start crying. That's my girl. She needs to go on more adventures. Don't cry. I won't. So, so I don't cry. Jesse, why don't you go ahead and start your case? 
<laughs> Let's get into it. On December 23, 1991, in Corsicana, Texas, a fire destroyed the home of Todd and Stacy Willingham, and it took the lives of their three daughters, Amber, Cameron, and Carmen. This case is definitely a head-scratcher and such a tragedy to say the least. The question in this case is whether the home burned down by accident or by arson. House fires happen far too often. Each year there's an average of 358,000 house fires. In 2018, fire departments and fire services responded to fires in the United States every 24 seconds. Damn. Is, is that not crazy? That's like your parents' neighbor. Yeah. That which, burned down to a crisp. Yeah, last week, it was like a hoarder's house, pretty much. So who knows what caused the fire, but... Everything, it, and they made it keep going though i'm sure i'm sure they probably had like cans of gasoline in there that they hoard who knows but it the front of the guy's truck was scorched too burnt to a crisp i don't know about y'all but it's always in the back of my mind mainly because our critters are home when we were at work so we always make sure to double check like megan straightener yeah we never leave the dryer running when we leave the house just stuff like that if I ever light a candle to make the house smell good, it might burn for a couple minutes and then I'll walk by and Jesse's blown it out already. Yeah, or like you walk outside for a second to be with the dogs to let them out to potty and I'm like, don't leave the fire going in there. <laughs> and I know we've talked about our stove top before and how the dogs sometimes get up there Have we with their front paws. Have we talked about or tell the mini story about it turning on by itself when I cleaned it? I don't think so. Yeah, you sprayed into the little... Yeah, I sprayed cleaner into... So we take the caps off so the dogs don't accidentally turn the stovetop on because it's in the front, not like up on top where I wish the nozzles were. But I had sprayed to kind of scrub the crud out before his fantasy football day because I was like, that's gross to see. And the chemicals did something, and it, like, the electronics in our... Was glitching. Yes, they were glitching, and the stovetop, all four burners were turning on at different heats. And they would not turn off, so I'm, I just threw yeah. the bl- the breaker, and it was like, the heck with It was that? wild. We couldn't even put the knobs back on and turn it, and it did nothing. And we flipped the breaker back the next day, and it was back to normal. All so good. So either that is just a wonky oven or we've got a ghost in the house. Strange. But literally, it can take like 30 seconds mm-hmm. for a small flame to turn into a big one. And I looked up the top three causes of fires in homes are cooking, heating equipment, and electrical malfunction. It would just be the worst thing ever. I can't even imagine what families have to go through losing a home to fire and the unfortunate ones that lose loved ones in a fire, too. Every day, at least one child dies from a fire inside their home. That's sad. And then more than 3,000 Americans die in fires each year. I don't know. I, I absolutely that, hate fires. That number of the ch- with per child or per home fire makes me think, uh, again, going back to Waco, how they found all those children... I mean, thankfully, they ended their lives before they could burn alive, but still. But still. This story takes place in Corsicana, Texas, 
It's a small city, 55 miles northwest of Waco. Oh, shit. Yeah, right? Corsicana is where oil was first discovered west of the Mississippi. It became the first Texas oil boomtown and one of Texas's wealthiest cities. In 1898, the state's first oil refinery was built by a company called Magnolia Petroleum Company, which is known today as Mobile. Or Mo- oh, really? Yeah. Unfortunately, many of these wells have dried up since, so more than a quarter of the city's 20,000 citizens have fallen into poverty. A lot of the stores on the main street were boarded up, making it look like a ghost town during the time of this case. The Willinghams lived in a one-story wood-framed house in a working-class neighborhood, 975-square-foot home. Wow. Stacy Willingham was 22 years old and worked in her brother's bar called Some Other Place. I love it. Todd Willingham was an unemployed auto mechanic and was basically a stay-at-home dad at the time. They didn't have much money. They didn't even have a stove in their house. They struggled keeping the lights on and paying the mortgage. I believe they were behind on most of their bills. The call came in mid-morning, two days before Christmas in 1991. 11-year-old Buffy Barbie was outside playing in her backyard a couple of houses down from the Willinghams when she smelled smoke. That is the coolest name a kid could ever have. It really is. She ran inside and told her mother, Diane, and they hurried up the street. They saw the house was burning, and they saw Cameron Todd Willingham, and he'll mainly go by Todd, standing on the front porch, barefoot, wearing only a pair of jeans. His chest was black from the smoke, and his hair was singed, and he was screaming, My babies are burning up. His babies two-year-old Amber and one-year-old twins, Carmen and Cameron, were trapped inside the house. And they were too young to save themselves. It was his responsibility to get them out. So many people I could think off the top of my head do not need to listen to this one. Yeah. His wife, Stacy, was not at home at the time either. Willingham yelled over at Diane Barbie to call 911. So she ran back down the street to call for help. As she did that, Buffy watched as Todd Willingham grabbed a stick and broke the children's bedroom window. When he did that, the flame blasted through the broken windows. Yep. He broke another window, and flames burst through it, too. He backed away into the yard and knelt in front of the house. A neighbor would later tell the police that Willingham cried, My babies, then fell silent as if he had just blocked the fire out of his mind. I'm sure he was just in a state of shock there, too. Diane Barbie showed back up to the house, and she could feel that intense heat coming off the house. Then five windows of the children's room exploded and (laughs) flames blew out. The first fireman showed up minutes later. The flames were by far the worst in the children's room, and they called for more men as soon as possible. They shot the fire with water from their hoses, and they entered the burning house and noticed that the back door was blocked by a refrigerator. Todd was looking on and becoming increasingly hysterical. George Monahan, a police chaplain, tried to console Todd and, and led him to the back of the fire truck, just, you know, trying to calm him down a little bit. 
and it was then that a fireman came out of the house holding Amber, the two-year-old. She was found in the master bedroom, in the bed, under the covers. She was given CPR, but would later be pronounced dead on the way to the hospital. You think she crawled under the covers to try to hide from the fire, like when you would hide from a monster? I think so, yeah. She, Bless her heart. She died from smoke inhalation. Cameron and Carmen had been lying on the floor of the children's bedroom. Their bodies were severely burned. They also died from smoke inhalation, according to the M.E. Willingham had tried yeah. to run into the house, but was stopped by two officers. Like, he had to be handcuffed, pretty much, for his own protection. Like, Monaghan even got a black eye for getting in his way. One of the firemen at the scene said that it, it would have been crazy for anyone to try and go back into that house. Todd was taken to the hospital where he stayed overnight, and then Stacy, of course, was found and given the awful news, and she was just completely destroyed by it. They both would be brought in for questioning a couple days later. Todd ended up giving permission for fire investigators to search the house. Douglas Fogg and Manuel Vasquez were the lead fire investigators on the case. Both of them had a lot of years under their belts, Manuel Vasquez was one of the state's leading arson experts. He had investigated more than 1,200 fires as a deputy fire marshal, and he had a lot of fire wisdom, he'd call it. He'd say, fire does not destroy evidence, it creates it. Hmm. The fire tells a story, and, and I am just the interpreter. It breathes, it eats, it hates. The only way to beat it is to think like it, to know that this flame will spread this way across the door and up across the ceiling. Then Douglas Fogg was the assistant fire chief there in Corsicana. He was this tall guy with a crew cut. His voice was all raspy, probably from the years of inhaling smoke from fires, but it didn't help that he always had a cigarette in his hand. I was going to ask, chain smoker much? <laughs> he grew up there in Corsicana, after graduating high school in 1963, he joined the Navy and served as a medic in Vietnam. He would end up getting wounded on four different occasions, earning a Purple Heart all four times. When he came home from Vietnam, that's when he decided to become a firefighter. And he had been fighting fires 20 years by the time the Willingham fire took place. Two guys that know their shit. Yes. Fogg was a certified arson investigator himself. He said you learn that fire has a way of talking to you. I like how both of them put that. His was more simple, but I like the other one's description. Yeah, it tells the story kind of. Mm-hmm. Now, they both went to the Willingham home four days after the fire. They moved from the least burned area towards the most damaged area. They took photographs of the perimeter of the house and took notes on every detail that stood out. Like the firemen, they noticed that the back door was blocked by the refrigerator. They actually had two fridges in the house. Hmm. And while they were inside, it smelled like burned rubber, melted wires... There was damp ash that covered the floor. In the kitchen, there was just smoke and heat damage, which led them to believe that the fire had not started there. So they continued on throughout the house. 
and it was it was small. Remember, only nine hundred and seventy five mm-hmm. square feet. There was a main hallway that led past a utility room and the master bedroom, then past a small living room on the left and the children's bedroom on the right. Then it would come to an end at the front door and there was a front porch attached to it. And I'll post pictures of the outside at least. And then I think I've got a picture of the children's room too. As they made their way past the utility room, Fogg noticed posters on the wall. There were skulls and grim reapers. They got to the master bedroom where Amber's body had been discovered. The damage in there was mainly smoke and heat, which, again, suggested that the fire had started somewhere else. They kept going down the hallway, ducking under insulation and wiring that was exposed from the ceiling, and they stepped over debris as they went and they noticed deep charring along the base of the walls. Now, I'm no fire expert, but I know that fires burn up, Mm -hmm. heat rises, but they found that the fire here had burned extremely low to the ground. There were these char patterns on the floor that looked like puddles. There was this, like, burn trail that led from the hallway into the children's bedroom, Vasquez suspected that a flammable liquid was poured on the floor, which would cause the fire to burn lower and make these puddle configurations. Oh, interesting. The fire was so bad that it burned through layers of carpet and tile and plywood. Even the metal springs under the children's beds had turned white, which was an indication of intense heat. Do they ever suspect the temperature that was reached, or could they determine... How hot that fire got? Experts will show like what a a wood house, the temperature of a wood house could be or and they'll show like what temperature a, a fire would be with a with a flammable liquid that caused it okay. later on. Okay. I'm just curious if it melted through tile and things like that, how hot. Right. I don't know. I'm no expert. They also noticed a piece of glass from one of the broken windows. It had this spiderweb type pattern on it, which investigators normally called crazed glass. This meant that a fire had burned fast and hot, leading them to the same conclusion as before, that that it had been fueled by a liquid accelerant. At the front door, they examined the wood under the door's aluminum threshold. It was charred. Just outside the front door on the concrete floor of the porch, they saw something else that was peculiar, brown stains. They reported that this was consistent with the presence of a liquid accelerant. They went back inside and they checked the walls for soot marks in the shape of a V, This pattern is created when an object catches fire and the heat and smoke radiate outwards. Oh. So the V will point to where the fire began. Interesting. That might be my word of the day. Interesting. Interesting. In the Willingham house, they found three places where this V was. In the main hallway, in the children's bedroom, and at the front door. So they felt pretty confident that this fire was set intentionally by human hands. 
because if there's three different places that a fire what would are start, the odds? yeah, usually it's just one place. In fact, they had 20 indicators in total that supported their findings. Their theory was that someone had poured liquid accelerant throughout the children's bedroom, even under the beds. Then they poured some more in the main hallway and then out towards the front door. Under their beds. That's horrible. Yeah, that would take someone pretty evil to do something like that. Once lit, there would be no way for the kids to get out. The fridge in the kitchen blocking the back door and then the burning hot flames blocking the front door. You said they had two fridges? Yes. Is that one in front of the back door, is that the only place it would have gone to fit in their kitchen? Quite possibly. You'll just have to wait and see, love. Yeah, my chihuahua. So this house was basically a death trap. They also felt like there was no way that Todd Willingham could have got out of there without burning the bottoms of his bare feet unless he was the one that started the fires. He went out through the front door? Yeah. Okay. Fogg and Vasquez collected samples of burned materials from the house and sent them to a lab that could detect the presence of the liquid accelerant. And of all the samples given to the lab, the only sample that contained evidence of mineral spirits was the sample from the front porch near the threshold of, near the threshold <laughs> threshold it's fine now they didn't have an answer for why the other puddle configuration areas didn't test positive but either way the fire was now considered a triple homicide and Todd Willingham was the number one suspect of course he is Police officer Jimmy Hensley, who was working his first potential arson case, along with Fogg and Vasquez, started working their way through the neighborhood, interviewing witnesses. Several witnesses, including Chaplain Monahan, portrayed Willingham as devastated by the fire. But after a while, more and more witnesses talked bad about Todd. Diane Barbie said that she didn't see Willingham put forth any effort to go back into the house to save his babies. She didn't see him breaking the windows? Well, she was off back at her house calling for the fire department to get there. She was like, you'd think he'd do everything in his power to save them. Well, I'm sure he couldn't even touch the handle of the front door because it would have burned him from grasping it. Right. People can say all they want, but if you're not there... If you've never been in a fire, you don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Right, I wouldn't know how to. Yeah. She said Todd seemed more worried about his car. She saw him moving it down the driveway away from the house. She said he didn't try to enter the house until after the authorities arrived, like he was trying to put on a show in front of them. Well, if his car was too close to the house and it blew up, Diane, what are you doing? Another witness said that when Willingham called out for his babies, he didn't appear to be that concerned. Monahan would later make a statement saying that things weren't as they seemed. He had a feeling that Willingham was in complete control. Another neighbor gave a statement that a couple days after the fire, Todd and a friend drove up to the burned house blaring their music loud and they were searching through the rubble for his dartboard because I guess he loved his, he loved to play darts. 
then there was this fundraiser put on for the family, and Todd and Stacy both showed up to that. Just appeared to some that Todd was enjoying himself too much. He was probably drunk and high to cope with the fact he lost his babies. Probably. The investigators began to come up with this pretty ugly picture of Willingham, and he didn't have the best reputation before the fire anyways. Todd Willingham was born in Ardmore, Oklahoma in 1968. His mother left when he, when he was just a baby. His father, Gene, raised him along with his stepmother, Eugenia. No, love, will you quit? I swear I don't try to find these stories <laughs> with the name Eugene in them. It's, it just happens. <laughs> Gene was a former U.S. Marine he worked in a salvage yard, and the family lived in this cramped small house. Todd was not a good student growing up, and as a teenager, he was a paint sniffer, if that tells you anything about him. When he was 17, he dropped out of school. He had been arrested for a lot of minor things that typical punk teenagers would get in trouble for, like shoplifting, stealing bikes, driving under the influence. The Oklahoma DHS described him as liking girls, music, fast cars, sharp trucks, swimming, and hunting, all in that order. You just described every Southerner. Pretty much, yeah. In 1988, that was when he met Stacy. He was 20 years old, and she was a senior in high school. She had a troubled past also. At four years old, her stepfather strangled her mother to death during an argument. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's some baggage for sure. Todd and Stacy's relationship was pretty unstable. Todd cheated on her, and they'd be off and on a lot. And he drank too much whiskey, and he would end up beating on her as well. But she would hit him back, too, so... At a girl. Yeah. The police had been called multiple times. A neighbor said that he once heard Willingham yell at her to, Get up, bitch, and I'll hit you again. And there were rumors that he even beat on her when she was pregnant. And with that rumor floating around, yeah, it wasn't surprising that the investigators had their eye on him. On December 31st, Willingham was brought in for questioning. Stacy was with him, too. Fogg and Vasquez were present along with Officer Jimmy Hensley. Willingham told them his side of the story. He said that Stacy had left the house around 9 a.m. to pay some bills and to pick up a Christmas present for the kids at the Salvation Army. After she left, he could hear the twins crying in their bedroom, so he got up out of bed and went to give them a bottle. Amber was still asleep. Him and Stacy often let them nap on the floor, so after they drank their bottles, that's where he left them. The children's room had this safety baby gate at the door, so the twins couldn't get out of there, but Amber could climb over it because she was a little bit bigger, which that's kind of impressive for a two-year-old, honestly. But And Todd would sleep in the nude, so he went back to his room. Stripped down and fell back asleep. Well, I'm glad he put clothes on to feed his kids. <laughs> right. That'd be weird. He ended up waking up to Amber yelling, Daddy, Daddy. When he opened his eyes, the house was already full of smoke. 
He said that he got up, felt around the floor for a pair of jeans and put them on. And he couldn't hear his daughter anymore, but hollered for her to get out of the house, get out of the house. So I don't know if he just never sensed her in the room or she went into the room after he had already gotten out of the house. Okay, because I was literally about to ask, why did he not at least take Amber out with him? Right, because if she was like right there, just pick her up, put put her on on your back and get the hell out of there. Put her on your hip. Something, Yeah. yeah. He said that he went down the hallway and tried to reach the children's bedroom. He couldn't see anything but black smoke. He could hear the sockets and the light switches popping. He said that the air smelled like it did three weeks prior when the microwave had blown up, like wire and stuff like that. He crouched down almost crawling and he made it to the children's bedroom. He said he stood up to get over the baby gate, but his hair caught on fire. It was the hottest thing he had ever felt or experienced in his life. That is... That just makes me think, like, if he's crawling on the ground, but if the accelerant was there first, it would be hotter on the ground while he's crawling on it. He would have been in flames himself, right? Before he stood up? This is his story. I'm in just thinking story, out loud. In his story, there's no accelerant. Oh, okay. I get it. I'm sorry. I'll keep my thoughts to myself. No, it's fine. Keep thinking. Oh. <laughs> Think harder. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep thinking. But the heat was just so extreme coming from their bedroom. That's where he first saw, like, flames. After he put the fire out in his hair, he started feeling his way around the room. And he thought he felt one of his girls, but it ended up just being a doll. And he said he just couldn't take any more of the heat so he, because f- he was feeling himself passing out at that point. So he made his way out the front door. Think about how your babies were feeling if you felt that way. Right. He saw Diane Barbie and called for her to get the fire department. After she left, he insisted that he tried but failed to get back inside. The investigators asked Todd if he had any idea what caused the fire. He wasn't sure but figured that it must have started in the girls' room because that's where he first saw the flames and that's where it was the hottest. He said that they used three space heaters to keep the house warm. And it was... A cold winter morning, but he wasn't sure if it was on. Stacy thought it had been on when she left. The investigators would later testify that it was turned off when they did their walkthrough of the house. Of course, that was four days after the fact, so anybody could have just switched it off. Who knows? Todd said that he taught Amber not to play with it. She, she had put things in it or messed with it every once in a while, and she would get whoopings for it. Todd thought that the fire was probably due to something electrical since he heard the popping noises when he was moving through the house to get to the children. They asked Todd if there was anyone that would want to hurt his family. He said that he couldn't think of anyone that cold-blooded. He couldn't understand why anyone would want to take his babies away from them. They had the prettiest babies anyone could ever ask for. He explained to them that, yeah, him and Stacy had their moments, but it was always the babies that brought them back together. He said he couldn't live without those kids, and he wished that he would have just never woke up. Oh, that's sad. Throughout the interview, Fogg pretty much took the lead, but Vasquez had one important question to ask. 
He asked Todd, did you put on shoes before you left the house? And Willingham said, no, sir. They had a map there on the table, and Vasquez pointed to the direction in which he thought Willingham left the house, and Willingham confirmed that. If he wasn't already, Vasquez was convinced that Willingham killed his children at this point. Well, of course. Yeah. He's the only survivor. With all the evidence that they found, Willingham could not have run out of that house the way he had described without badly burning his feet, and his feet weren't burnt. The fire had burned low because the floor had been soaked with the liquid accelerant, according to their findings. His feet unharmed, according to the medical report. I have a quick question. Okay. Do they ever say the brand of electrocutors that they used in that house? Ooh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Because... Is there a difference between certain ones? Well... I don't know how to pronounce this exactly, but DeLonghi, D-E-L-O-N-G-H-I, was a brand. And on August 15th, 1991, there was a recall for oil-filled electric heaters, reports of electrical failures within some control panels, which the commission believed could cause fires. What year was that? 1991, in August. Really? That's why I'm curious, because... I was just looking up the different oils that are used, and they're diathermic, and those are mineral oils, which was on the base of that floor of the door. I'm the one saying interesting now. That okay. You could have solved the case right there. I don't know what kind of heater they had, but I Well, I'll have I to thought, look it up here in a little bit. Excuse Derby while she drinks more water. Proceed. Willingham told them that when he was leaving the house, the fire was still around the top of the walls and not on the floor. He didn't have to jump through any flames, but Vasquez didn't believe him. He believed that Willingham lit the fire and he was retreating, first in the children's room, then the hallway, and then the front porch and front door. Vasquez would later say that all Todd did was talk and talk and talk and tell them nothing but lies. But they still didn't have a motive. Like, why would Willingham do this? Yeah, why? Now, the children did have a life insurance policy, but it was under Stacy's grandfather's name, and he was the one that paid for it. He was the primary beneficiary, and it only amounted to $15,000 anyways. That could have helped them quite a bit, though, I'm sure. Not enough to kill your kids over it. No. But 15000 for them in their, you know, financial state. Eh. But no, not to kill your kids. No, I'm not saying do that. Stacy told the investigators that, yes, Todd would sometimes hit her, but he would never hurt his babies. They were spoiled rotten. So she was on Todd's side. Okay. They let Todd walk that day, but on the night of January 8th, 1992... Two weeks after the fire, Willingham was riding in a car with Stacy when SWAT teams surrounded them, forcing them to pull over. And with guns drawn, they arrested him. Willingham was charged with murder. Under Texas law, because there were multiple victims, he was eligible for the death penalty. And there was no way that Willingham could afford to hire a lawyer, so he was assigned to by the state. 
David Martin, who was a former state trooper, and Robert Dunn, who was a local defense attorney that took on anything from alleged murderers to spouses in divorce cases. So he called himself a jack-of-all-trades. Prosecuting attorney John Jackson wasn't really on the side of capital punishment because he didn't think that it discouraged other criminals from committing the same crimes, and he thought it was a waste of the state's money because executing a prisoner costs three times the cost of incarcerating someone for thir- for 40 years. Really? I know. I found that hard to believe. He then worried about the repercussions if they made a mistake and someone innocent was actually executed for something they didn't do. But he didn't really have the final say here, and they ultimately came to an agreement on their side to push for the death penalty. Not long after Willingham's arrest, a prison inmate named Johnny Webb came forward with a pretty big accusation. He alleged that Willingham, who was in the same jail as him, had confessed to him about killing his children. He said that Willingham told him that he took some some kind of lighter fluid, squirted it around the walls and the floor, and set a fire. Now, all this time, though, Willingham was claiming that he was innocent, so I just couldn't see that he would just tell a random stranger. Yeah, that that doesn't make any sense. The prosecuting attorneys believed that they had all they needed, and they were confident that they'd win. They believed that all the evidence would show that Willingham was 100% guilty, and even some of Stacy's relatives believed that Willingham set the fire. Stacy, on the other hand, believed that Todd would never hurt the children. Before the jury selection, though, prosecuting attorney John Jackson came to Willingham's attorneys with an offer. If Willingham pleads guilty, the state would give him a life sentence. So to his lawyers, that was a win. Yeah, because he didn't die. Yeah. They didn't have much of a defense for him. They didn't even, they actually thought that he did it. They felt like if it went before a jury, he'd for sure be found guilty and be executed. So they advised Todd to accept the deal, but he refused. They even spoke with Todd's father and stepmother, pretty much just telling them that he has no chance. He needs to take the deal or he'll be put to death. Todd's father didn't believe that he should plead guilty if he was truly innocent, but his stepmother told him to take the deal. Yeah, because if you take the deal, you're admitting to guilt, but if he didn't do it, then fight for it. Yeah. Fight for your life. Yeah. He said he he ain't going to plead to something he didn't do. Mm-hmm. So he was hell-bent on pleading innocent, especially killing to killing his own kids. I mean, if it was something else... And he was offered a deal, maybe, but not something like that. But that only added to the prosecutor's belief that Willingham was an unrepentant killer by pleading innocent, which is strange to me. The murder trial took place in August of 1992 in downtown Corsicana in the Old Stone Courthouse. So I thought, I was surprised by that. I figured... They'd move it. Oh, yeah, I figured the defense would try and get a change of venue or something. You already said they thought he was guilty, too. Yeah, they didn't care. The prosecuting side brought in witness after witness after witness. Johnny Webb, the prison inmate that claimed Willingham confessed to him. The Barbies, 
who saw firsthand how Todd acted while the house was up in flames. They brought in Vasquez, who testified that he found more than 20 indicators of arson and how it just had to be Todd. The only witness that the defense brought forward was the Willingham's babysitter, who said that she couldn't believe that Willingham could have killed his children. Did he ever file against these lawyers <laughs> and try to get new counsel or anything? No. Bro. They didn't have much of a budget either to bring any like expert witnesses on on behalf of Willingham. The so one, they just took the babysitter? Yeah, pretty much. The one fire expert that they called upon to counter Vasquez and Fogg actually agreed with them, so they really weren't much of a help to Willingham at all. And the trial was over after two days. During the closing arguments, Jackson said that the puddle configurations and the poor patterns were Willingham's inadvertent confession burned into the floor. So although he was maintaining his innocence, that evidence was telling enough right there. And the jury didn't take long at all. In about an hour, they came back with a unanimous guilty verdict, and Todd Willingham was sentenced to death. And he had very few visitors. His parents would come see him from time to time, but they were getting older, and they lived in Oklahoma, Stacy had originally fought for his release. She wrote to the governor of Texas trying to explain that there was no way he could have possibly committed the crime. But then all of a sudden, she just filed for divorce. It was like her family was brainwashing her into believing that Todd was the killer, and over time she kind of changed her mind about it. I can see that happening. Fast forward seven years to 1999. A woman named Elizabeth Gilbert, a 47-year-old playwright and teacher from Houston, Texas, was trying to find her purpose in life. She had gone through a divorce, her parents were getting old, and she was kind of just adrift. A friend came to her who opposed the death penalty and asked her if she wouldn't mind writing to a man on death row as kind of like a pen pal. She was skeptical at first, but she agreed, and the name given to her at random turned out to be Todd Willingham. He wrote to her and thanked her for writing to him and, and mentioned that he'd like to visit her in person or have her visit him in person because obviously be she, he ain't going nowhere. She was surprised by how polite and kind he was, though. After thinking about it over and over, trying to, to imagine how their interaction would go, she decided that she would go visit him. She was like, what's the worst that could happen? She had never been in a prison before. She showed up to the penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, the place inmates called the Death Pit. Oh, wonderful. She passed a razor wire fence, floodlights, and a checkpoint where she was patted down. Then she entered a room where there were these men behind plexiglass screens and people sitting down to talk to them on phones. She sat down there in front of this handsome young man. That's just not what she expected at all. And they talked for two hours. And Todd didn't really want to talk about the fire at first or anything that went on at the prison. I mean, who would? He hated his reality and wanted to know what it was like on the outside. So Gilbert would tell him about her life. 
and that was sort of like the icebreaker between them. And over time, she would start bringing up things about the fire and asking him questions. So, yeah, she kept coming back for visits over and over again. Wow. And when he told her the story about what happened, she didn't, like, immediately think he was innocent or anything. She probably read all the papers, heard all the hype, all that. Yeah. She thought it was very tragic, and her being a writer, she thought it was a great story. And she had a neighbor who had been a reporter, and her neighbor was telling her, like, you need to investigate into this story. I mean, he did, after all, insist time and time again that he was innocent. And he just had this charm about him that made people want to believe him. Gilbert drove down to Corsicana and reviewed the trial records. The clerk at the courthouse found it very odd that anyone would, anyone would be interested in a man who burned his children alive. Gilbert studied the records and came across a few contradictions. Okay. Diane Barbie had initially reported that Willingham never tried to go back into the house, right? But she was absent for a while when she left to call the fire department, and her daughter Buffy had reported witnessing Willingham on the porch breaking a window trying to get to his kids. The firemen and police on the scene had described him frantically trying to get into the house too. So Miss Barbie's report obviously didn't make Willingham look very good. Her testimony changed from saying that the front of the house was exploding to there was not real thick smoke and he could have gone back in to rescue his children. Huh. I feel like once word started spreading around town about the fire investigators claiming that it was arson, people's opinions of Willingham started to change from like sympathetic towards him to like furious at him. Father Monahan's testimony changed as well. In his first report, he described Willingham as a devastated father who needed to be restrained. After all, he got a black eye from the whole deal. Then he said Willingham had been too emotional, like it was an act. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me a man of faith <laughs> lied? Yeah. He said mm. he had some mm-hmm. he had a gut feeling that Willingham had something to do with setting the fire. How much they pay him? <laughs> what they give to his ministry. <laughs> the prosecutors had portrayed Willingham as being some sort of a demon. He had moved his car back out of the driveway because he was more worried about his car getting damaged than saving his kids. That's how they made it look. Gilbert asked Todd about this, and he explained that he moved the car back because he didn't want it to explode, like Megan said, further threatening his children's lives. Duh! She continued questioning him every visit, and each visit, he opened up more and more. He told her that he had been a sorry-ass husband who hit Stacy, and that that was something he deeply regretted. He started dating her when he was in high, when she was in high school and he had this macho idea of what a man was supposed to be. But he loved those children and would never hurt them. He said fatherhood changed him and he stopped being a hoodlum and became a man. Gilbert continued to go around asking questions to people who in, who were involved. 
And I'm sure all of them were thinking like, who is this lady? Yeah. It's been seven, eight years. Who's wanting to bring this back up? Many of the people she tracked down remained convinced that he was guilty, but several of his friends and relatives thought otherwise. And so did some people in law enforcement. His former probation officer in Oklahoma, Paulie Gooden, said that he had never showed any signs of sociopathic behavior. He was probably one of her favorite kids. Even a former judge, B.B. Bridges, who had sent him to jail for stealing, said he was always polite and seemed to care. He had done dumb kid stuff, but even the things he stole weren't significant. Willingham had even tracked down his probation officer several months before the fire just to show her pictures of Stacy and the kids. He wanted to show her that he had been doing good in life. That's nice. And Gilbert also met with Stacy, too. She said that nothing out of the ordinary happened in the days before the fire. They hadn't fought. They were just getting ready for Christmas. When asked about the space heater in the children's room, Stacy said that she was sure it was on because it was a cool winter morning. She remembered turning it down before she left. In the back of her mind, she had always thought, gosh, could Amber have put something in it? Because more than once, she had caught Amber putting things too close to it. When Stacy was on the stand during the penalty phase... Prosecuting attorney Jackson had grilled her about the meaning behind Willingham's tattoo. He had a very big tattoo of a skull and a snake wrapped around it. And she was like, it's just a tattoo. You know, they were making it out. Like a satanic thing? Yeah, like with the posters on the walls and his tattoo. Like Our room in here is black. My nails are black. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm not like... So the prosecution had brought in two medical experts to confirm that Willingham fit this profile of a sociopath, but neither of these experts had actually ever met Todd Willingham or evaluated him in person. So this was just like their opinions. Like a basic overview of what one is, and they made it sound like it matched him. Yeah. One was Tim Gregory. He was a psychologist with a master's degree in marriage and family issues. Oh, okay. But he had not published any research in the field of sociopathic behavior. So Did questioning they just, like, go him, down the street and knock on some dude's door and go, oh, you're, you're a psychologist? Come, come here. Right. Jackson showed Gregory this photo of an Iron Maiden poster that was on the wall in Willingham's house and asked the psychologist to interpret it. He said, this one is a picture of a skull with a fist being punched through the skull. The image displays violence and death. I mean, I I Google imaged all the Iron Maiden posters. I mean, it's all the same skeleton guy. I think his name's Eddie. I'm sure there was a lot of young 23, 24-year-olds with that in their utility room during those days. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) He looked at other posters and said there's a hooded skull with wings and a hatchet and all those are in fire depicting, it reminds me of something like hell. And there's a Led Zeppelin picture of a falling angel. I see there's an association many times with cult type activities, a focus on death. Many times individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic type activities. I just looked up a picture of the band from 1991. And if you told me 
dad jeans and mullets equals satanic and death. Looking at this picture, do you think these men, <laughs> do you think? Absolutely not. I mean, come on, they guys. Look, they look like they like pro wrestling or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The other medical expert was James Grigson, a forensic psychiatrist. He testified so often for the prosecution and capital punishment cases that he had become known as Dr. Death. Oh, great. He suggested that Willingham was an extremely severe sociopath and that no pill or treatment could help him. Grigson had used damn near the same words in helping to secure the death sentence of Randall Dale Adams, who had been convicted of killing a police officer in 1977. Adams was 72 hours away from his death sentence, when new evidence appeared that proved his innocence and he was released. What? So that just goes to show this Jeff Gregson guy. In 1995, three years after Willingham's trial, Gregson was expelled from the American Psychiatric Association for Violating Ethics. He had repeatedly come to a psychiatric diagnosis without actually examining the individuals in question. And then he testified in court as this expert witness that he could predict with 100% certainty that the individuals would engage in future violent acts. Uh, So you would think, like... Are you kidding me? You throw that witness out three years later, I mean, you should have, like, a retrial or something. Having a piece of paper does not make you a smart person. Having a degree does not make you smart. True. Gilbert spoke with one other person, Johnny Webb, the inmate. Right. Webb was in his late 20s. He had pale skin and a shaved head. His eyes were just like all over the place. And he kind of had the shakes probably because he had been doing drugs since he was like nine years old. He had done time for car theft, selling drugs, forgery, and robbery. And yet he's a credible witness on the stand? Exactly. Ugh. Gilbert met him in Iowa Park, Texas, in the prison visiting room. He repeated to Gilbert what he told everyone in court. He said that he spoke through a food slot to Willingham, and he said Willingham just broke down and told him that he intentionally set the house on fire. The jury believing somebody like that is just crazy That's to me. true. He alleged that Willingham set the fire to cover up that Stacy had hurt one of the kids. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. The autopsies revealed no bruises or signs of trauma on the children's bodies. So when Webb came forward after Willingham's arrest, he was facing charges of robbery and forgery. He was looking at 15 years in prison Five years later, he would be given parole, and it was mainly because Jackson, the prosecuting attorney, spoke to the parole board on his behalf. I was wondering what he got out of this deal. Jackson claimed that he was trying to protect Webb, who was being targeted by the Aryan Brotherhood, but let's be honest, it was he because like they he's made part a deal. Of one yeah. With his shaved head. Well, and- they made a deal. They said before in the trial that the there was no deal, but... There's always a deal. There's always a deal. 
In March of 2000, several months after Gilbert spoke with him, Webb unexpectedly sent Jackson a motion to recant his testimony, declaring, Mr. Willingham is innocent of all charges. But Willingham's lawyer was never informed of this, and it wasn't long after this that Webb recanted his recantation. What? Bro, you can't do... There's no backsies <laughs> on the no, backsies. No take backsies. Just without explanation. But, I mean, he was obviously lying from the start. He even asked Gilbert when they spoke. He was like, what's the statute of limitations on perjury? Oh, my God. And then Gilbert found that the refrigerator's placement by the back door of the house, it had always been there in that same spot, so that was irrelevant. He wasn't blocking an escape route or anything like that. There was just a tiny-ass house with two fridges. Yeah. Gilbert investigated for months, and she started to really just be dumbfounded by the prosecution side of things. Like, what if Todd was really innocent after all? And Willingham didn't believe he didn't believe that he belonged there on death row. I mean, for a while he shared a cell with Ricky Lee Green, who was a serial killer who castrated and fatally stabbed his victims, including a 16-year-old boy. Oh yeah, put Just, him in the same room with another man. <laughs> yeah, really. What? Will- he, Willingham must have like been sleeping with like his hands cupped over his balls, and or did. just not sleeping at all. Because he was being targeted for being a baby killer. He said prison is a rough place, and with a case like mine, they never give you the benefit of the doubt. This is a hard place, and it makes a person really hard inside. So he was housed in a prison within a prison, basically. There's no rehabilitation, no educational programs, no training programs. He was held in isolation in a 60-square-foot cell for 23 hours a day, every day. Oof, that makes someone go crazy. It would. And he would just try to distract himself by drawing and writing poems, and he wrote in his diary. But more importantly, he tried to teach himself law. He read books like Tact in Court and How Lawyers Win, but he said that law was just too complicated and it was hard for him to understand, which I understand. He was able to get a new court-appointed lawyer, Walter Reeves, who just couldn't believe how awful Willingham's defense was at trial. Reeves prepared for him a state writ of habeas corpus. In this, a prisoner can introduce new evidence detailing things like perjury in testimonies, unreliable medical experts, and false scientific findings. But the problem with, you know, most death row inmates is that they lack resources to find new witnesses and fresh evidence because they're just cooped up. In a box all day. Yeah. They're stuck relying on court-appointed lawyers who are oftentimes unqualified, irresponsible, or overburdened. Although, I will say the prosecutor's podcast guy this weekend said that sometimes you're better off in the hands of court-appointed lawyers. Yep, because they know the system, they know the judges, they know the area. True. All that. 
Reeves may have been more competent than his previous lawyers, but the Court of Criminal Appeals still denied this writ. He then filed another writ of habeas corpus in federal court and was granted a temporary stay. Willingham was entering his final stages of appeals, so he was relying more and more on Gilbert to investigate his case, his case, which was crazy because she didn't have any experience with this kind of stuff. She was a teacher and a playwright, I, but he trusted her over anyone else, and she seemed to actually care, you know. In 2002, a federal district court of appeals denied this writ, too, without even a hearing. They appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but in December of 2003, he was notified that it, too, had been declined. That sucks. And then he soon received a court order announcing that at 6 o'clock on February 17, 2004, the Department of Criminal Justice in Huntsville, Texas, would carry out his sentence of death by injection. All he had left really was to appeal to the governor of Texas, which was Rick Perry at that time, for clemency. And that was kind of the last gatekeeper, as they'd call it, for to the executioner. Yeah. And then in this last-ditch effort, Gilbert had come across a Dr. Gerald Hurst and sent him a file of all the evidence of arson gathered in Willingham's case, all the 20-plus indicators of arson. Hurst was this acclaimed scientist, and he agreed to look at the case pro bono as he had done many times before. That's a good man. So Reeves, Willingham's lawyer, sent him all the relevant documents he would need in the hope that he would find grounds for clemency. Hearst opened up this file in the basement of his house in Austin, Texas, which kind of served as his little laboratory and office for him. It was covered in microscopes and half-finished experiments. Makes me think about the Ghostbusters Afterlife movie when she goes down the pole into the little basement area and Egon's all of his like little designs and all his oh, yeah. devices were down there. It reminded me of my or my physics teacher in college, Dr. Hutton, because both of them had like this long gray hair and Hurst had this wad of chewing tobacco in his mouth and and Dr. Hutton always had pre-rolled cigarettes like he carried around a bag of tobacco with him and he would pre-roll these cigarettes it was interesting to say the least he was a interesting man yeah but for some reason i was one of his favorite students even though i changed my major from physics to business out of nowhere he was my advisor at first oh really and then he'd ask you to to mow his lawn yeah but hearst was this tall but slouched old man with the long gray hair kind of reminded me of Einstein. But he was this child prodigy growing up during the Great Depression, and he used to hunt through junkyards collecting magnets and copper wires to build radios. That's so cool. These other contraptions. In the 60s, he got his Ph.D. in chemistry from Cambridge, where he started to experiment with fluorine and other chemicals. And he worked as a chief scientist on what he called god-awful things. He helped patent astrolite bombs. He experimented with toxins so lethal that a fraction of a drop would rot human flesh. 
And because of his extraordinary knowledge of fire and explosives, companies in civil litigation often asked for his help in determining the cause of a fire. And by the 90s, he had devoted a large portion of his time to criminal arson cases. So, like the two investigators at the start, this guy was an expert, to say the least. Smarter than them. And he was shocked to see the methods of local and state fire investigators. Many arson investigators don't have an education past the high school level. In order to be certified in most states, investigators only have to take a 40-hour course on fire investigation and pass a written exam. That's it. The bulk of their training comes from the job, learning Mm -hmm. from old-timers in the field who pass down their wisdom about tall tale signs of arson, even though there was this study in 1977 warning that there was nothing in the scientific literature to prove these things to be true. And there's so much evolution of substances over the years. That too, yeah. Mutations. Yeah. In 1998, Hearst investigated a case of a woman in North Carolina named Terry Henson. She was charged with setting a fire that killed her 17-month-old son, and she faced the death penalty. Hearst recreated the conditions of this fire and proved that it was caused accidentally by a faulty electrical wire in the attic, and Henson was freed because of Hearst. So if he could if he could do it there, maybe he could do it for Willingham. But one of the big issues in Willingham's case was that Hearst received the files too late. Only a few weeks before he was scheduled to be executed. But he looked through the records and immediately something Manuel Vasquez said jumped out at him. Vasquez testified that of the twelve hundred plus fires he had investigated, Most all of them were arson, but Hearst knew that Texas State Fire Marshal's office typically found arson in only 50% of its cases, so that was kind of an oddly high estimate, yes. Hearst also explained that the theory that a flammable liquid causes flames to reach higher temperatures was nonsense. Experiments have shown that wood and gasoline-fueled fires burn at essentially the same temperature. So Vasquez claimed that the fire burned fast and hot because of a liquid accelerant was bogus. Oh. Hearst said that a natural wood fire can reach temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is far hotter than the melting point for aluminum alloys, which ranges from 1,000 to 1,200 degrees. So when Vasquez and Fogg said that a liquid accelerant had flowed underneath this aluminum threshold and burned, they were wrong, basically. Okay. Hearst conducted a number of these experiments that showed that the charring under the door was caused by the aluminum conducting so much heat. In fact, when liquid accelerant is poured under a threshold, a fire will extinguish because of lack of oxygen. Hearst examined Fogg and Vasquez's claim that the stains on Willingham's front porch were evidence of that liquid accelerant. Hearst performed a test in his garage where he poured charcoal lighter fluid on the concrete floor and lit it. When the fire went out, there were no brown stains, only smudges of soot. 
He ran the same experiment multiple times with different liquid accelerants, and the results stayed the same. The brown stains Hearst found were usually from charred debris that had mixed with water from fire hoses. And that Those was com- were after the fact. Yeah, it was common in fires. Another piece of evidence that helped put Willingham away was the crazed glass that Vasquez attributed the to spotter the... spotterweb glass? Yeah. The, he attributed to the rapid heating from a fire fueled with liquid accelerant. Hearst tested this in his lab, too. He heated glass with a blowtorch, and nothing happened. But as soon as he poured water on the glass, <gasps> the pattern showed up. So the crazed glass happened when the firemen put the fire out. I could see. Same thing happened in an example that Hearst explained. So in November of 91, a team of fire investigators inspected 50 homes in Oakland, California that had been destroyed by brush fires. A dozen of the homes had crazed glass, even though a liquid accelerant had not been used. Most of the those dozen homes were on the outskirts of the blaze where firemen had shot with water. Uh, I mean, when you think about it, how much evidence is ruined or disturbed when the firefighters come in? That makes total sense, but it, it's, those two investigators didn't even blink twice. Mm-hmm. They didn't even I think consider they, that. They walked in that house with one thing in their mind already. To prove that... That Todd willing, did it. Yes, that's exactly what I think. They already had that in their mind that he was guilty. I also wonder why they waited so many days to Four days after enter. the fact, right. The crazed glass had been caused by the rapid cooling, not sudden heating. So Vasquez and Fogg's claims were nothing more than old wives' tales. The biggest test that Hearst had to disprove was those three V-shaped patterns. I was wondering about these. On the wall in the children's bedroom, hallway, and living room that showed multiple points of origin. But they did say they had three space heaters. That is true, too. I've been waiting on this. And then, of course, he had to prove the burn trail and the pore patterns and the puddle configurations and the positive test for mineral spirits by the front door. All this made it impossible for Willingham to get out of the house without burning his bare feet unless he was, in fact, the one to start the fire, right? Hearst explained that with the naked eye, it is impossible to distinguish between poor patterns caused by an accelerant and those caused naturally by post-flashover. Flashover is the point at which radiant heat causes a fire in a room to become a room on fire. The path of a fire depends on new sources of oxygen from open doors or windows. Busted windows. Right. So when Willingham busted the windows open trying to get in and the fire exploded, for example, that was... In the front and the children's room. That was a new source of oxygen. The only reliable way to tell the difference between the two is to take samples from the burn patterns and test them in a lab for the presence of flammable liquids. And the only burn patterns to test positive for that was the one on the front porch, right? So during post-flashover, burning under beds and furniture is, is common too. Entire doors are consumed and aluminum thresholds are melted. 
If there was a flashover, when Willingham exited his bedroom, the hallway was not yet on fire. The flames were contained at that point to the children's bedroom. That would explain that bright light that Willingham said he saw in there. By the time the fire achieved flashover, Willingham was already outside in the front yard. And then caused. So he could have gotten out without burning his feet. After Hearst reviewed Fogg and Vasquez's list of more than 20 indicators, only one had any potential validity, the front porch liquid accelerant. And the easy part for Hearst was finding a picture in the case reports that showed that there was a grill sitting on the front porch with a can of lighter fluid next to it. The family would have barbecues out on the front porch. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. I was thinking at least like paint thinner, like because they were cleaning or doing a project. Mm. It's simpler than that. Both had burned when the fire erupted onto the porch during the post-flashover. By the time Vasquez inspected the house, the grill had been removed from the porch during cleanup. Hearst was convinced now that he had solved the mystery. And none of the neighbors said, hey, we always go over there for a cookout. Pieces of shit. When firefighters blasted the porch with water, they had likely spread charcoal lighter fluid from the melted container. Hearst found it highly unlikely that Willingham would pour lighter fluid on the front porch and light it with the chance that his neighbors would witness it. Let's be honest. That's a good point. Without visiting the fire scene, Hearst couldn't pinpoint the exact cause of the fire but he strongly believed that it was accidental, most likely caused by that space heater or faulty electrical wiring. This explained why there had been no motive for the crime also. Hearst concluded that there was no evidence of arson and that this man who had already lost his three children and spent 12 years in prison was about to be executed based on junk science. Hearst wrote up this report so fast that he didn't even bother fixing typos. On February 13th, four days before he was scheduled to be executed, Willingham received a call from his attorney, Reeves. Reeves told him that the 15 members of the Board of Pardons and Paroles have made their decision. They denied the petition. Are you kidding? The vote was unanimous. Did they even have time to look over Hearst's report or anything? Did it even make it to them in time? I just... Reeves couldn't even give him an explanation because the board deliberates in secret, but... They they, could have deliberated days prior and then announced... They technically didn't even have to review the new findings, and they usually don't even debate the case in person. They can just cast their votes by facts. Well, that's a little sketch. Yeah. They call it death by tax, or (laughs) death by fax. Well, tax, too. Yeah. Tax dollars pay for that. Between 1976 and 2004, the state of Texas had approved only one application for clemency from a prisoner on death row, and it wasn't Willingham. The Innocence Project, which I've talked about a few times in the past episodes, got all the records from the governor's office and the board regarding Hearst's report. And they could get those because of the Freedom of Information Act. The documents showed that they received the report, 
but neither office had any record of anyone actually acknowledging it, taking note of its significance, responding to it, or calling any attention to it. The only reasonable conclusion is that the governor's office and board of pardons and paroles ignored scientific evidence. That's ridiculous. I mean, if that's truly the case, then... Think of how many other people. Obviously, there are a lot of people that deserve death. But I would think you at least take time to look over every case. Mm Mm-hmm. It just comes down to these powerful people not ever accepting the fact that they could be wrong every now and again. Or maybe they see dollar signs when they see heads. They don't want to own up to it or something. They don't want to look bad by giving clemency to someone who was on death row for such a heinous crime or something. It wouldn't look good on their resume, you know, when it came time for people to vote for them again in the next terms or something. But instead, they possibly let innocent man die. But on the flip side of things, they let people out all the time that should remain behind bars. Yeah. Imperfect system, Uh like I was saying before. Willingham said that he hoped that someday, somehow, the truth would be known and his name cleared. He got it. And knowing that his time was almost up, Todd asked his ex-wife Stacy if his tombstone could be next to his children's graves. Stacy had always expressed her belief that Todd was innocent, but, you know, her family talked her into thinking otherwise, and she denied him his wish. Gilbert felt like she had failed Todd, but in reality, she was the best thing that ever happened to him. He told her that there was one thing about the day of the fire that he had lied about. He had never actually crawled over the baby gate and into the children's room. He didn't want people to think that he was a coward, that he actually was. So that would explain what Hirsch was would later be quoted saying. He said, people who have never been in a fire don't understand why those who survive often can't rescue the victims. They have no concept of what a fire is like. Todd asked Gilbert to please be present at his execution to help him cope with his fears, thoughts, and feelings. And of course, she said she would be there for him. Willingham did receive word last minute that Governor Perry had refused to grant him a stay. Obviously. On February 17, 2004, Willingham's parents and several relatives were in the prison visiting room. There was only plexiglass separating them. He asked the group where Gilbert was, and she had been driving home from the store when another car ran a red light and smashed into her and she was paralyzed from the neck down. Are you kidding me? No. She had tried to get a message to him, but failed. So she wasn't there. She was there in spirit, I guess. That is shit luck. It really is. And before receiving his lethal injection, Todd Willingham's last words were, The only statement I want to make is that I am an innocent man convicted of a crime I didn't commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I didn't do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return, so the earth shall become my throne. After his death, his parents were allowed to touch his face for the first time in more than a decade. I don't know about that. 
and they ended up cremating his body at his request, and then they secretly spread some of his ashes over his children's graves. Oh, I'm so happy. Yeah. I was hoping, well, obviously Gilbert's paralyzed, but I was hoping that she was going to take like a like a plaque or have something made or like a flower arrangement, like a faux flower arrangement with like a secret little piece of paper from him and like stick it by the baby's graves or something so part of him could have been there. Yeah. In the movie, Trial by Fire, Gilbert was the one that, that dumped the ashes on the graves. Her her son and her daughter pushed her in the wheelchair to the graves. And that is the story of the Willingham Fire. Now, there were other experts besides Hearst later on that proved Fogg and Vasquez's findings to be invalid as well. Oh, I'm so glad. And the Innocence Project tasked a number of fire investigators to conduct their own independent reviews of the arson evidence. On this case or others? This case in particular. They had fire expert John Lentini being one of them. In 2005, there was a government commission formed to investigate allegations of error and misconduct by forensic scientists. So that was not just this case, but all cases moving forward. But this case was one of the first reviewed. Fire scientist Craig Baylor concluded that the investigators in his in this case had no scientific basis for claiming the fire was arson. They ignored evidence that contradicted their theory. They had no comprehension of flashover and relied on discredited folklore. He said that Vasquez's approach denied rational reasoning. It's that tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was more and more fire experts coming forward to claim that they screwed up big time. The governor, Rick Perry, never acknowledged that they wrongfully executed an innocent he man. He never will. He described Willingham as a monster. He was a guy who murdered his three children, who tried to beat his wife into an abortion so that he wouldn't have those kids. Person after person had stood up and testified to facts of this case that, quite frankly, you all aren't covering. So it's, it's like no matter what the Innocence Project and these other fire experts brought to the table, he wasn't having it. He was just dead set. On the original conviction. It just sounds like the his fire investigators are all his buddies. And he's not going to let his buddies go down or something. Yeah. What do you think? That is probably one of the most irritating cases I've ever heard. Like at the beginning when you're talking about his car being moved or him being out front or something. It's just like, do people not... I know people nowadays don't have a lot of common sense, but they did back then. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, my first thought when you said he was moving his car was exactly what I said. Don't let it blow up. It's full of gasoline. Why would anybody else, especially if some of those officers were parents themselves, why would anybody else think otherwise? Yeah. And he, he obviously couldn't go back in or he was too scared to which he admitted later, so he had to do something. He's human. He moved the car back. He tried to, like, knock the windows out. Not knowing that he yeah. was making it worse. He knew the fire department was on their way, at least, so maybe he was just trying to do everything he could until they were there to save them. And did those officers and the firefighters not get up to testify that he was frantic and that he punched a priest? 
None of them. Of course, that priest lied. He needs to be taken yeah. away. Yeah, it just came down to everyone believing what Vasquez and his findings were. The wrong narrative. Changing their opinion on it. Yeah, it was a small Texas town. I mean, politics were important. They definitely should have asked to be moved. And at the time, the John Jackson guy was running for judge, and he was, you know, the prosecution. So there were a lot of reasons for him to find someone and get them convicted. So, I mean, he found Johnny Webb, that nervous young guy in prison the on tweaker. drugs. Yeah. I can't believe that... I mean, if they had even interviewed or gone through the steps properly, maybe they would have asked about what the firefighters did on scene, like moving the grill. But it obviously sounds like they didn't even do that process. Right. It was in a picture, you know, in the court documents. Like It's right there. It's Why right didn't there. you ask about it? Well, I also love the fact that Mr. Hurst or Dr. Hurst, did he have his doctorate or yeah, just, he did? Yeah, doctor. I like that he does experiments in his garage and in his home. Just burning the concrete and, floor. Do you know if he was married? I don't know. I can just imagine if he was, that his, he'd be like, all right, honey, I'm going into the garage. If you smell smoke, it's just me. Like, yeah. don't worry about it. It said he'd blown up a lab at one point in his younger days. I love it. Experimenting. And I like that he took his love for something and he's been... Well, I saw he's passed away now, but he did good work. Pro bono, too. Yes. So I applaud that man. There was over 10 that he overturned. Oh, that's wonderful. Because fire, it doesn't, I mean, I can't imagine trying to decipher through, like, that house by your parents. Like, can you imagine trying to go through stuff and let alone trying to find evidence of what started it? That's... Or trying to put that out yourself. There ain't no way. It took how long for our little burn pile to go out? <laughs> like 60 hours? Right, yeah. I can't imagine a whole house with different materials inside. More mm-hmm. flammable than the wood. Good job, love. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lot. I got mush mouth a few times, but... You just won't be like me. Mm-hmm. That wraps up another episode here on the Cot Red Podcast. If you like us, share us. Leave us a review wherever you listen to help us get more dog lovers, cat lovers, true crime lovers out there to find us. And if you look on Facebook and Instagram, we are on both of those. And you have to remember, you got to spell it P-A-W-D for podcast. Send us any recommendations if you have them, and we will be back next week with some more true crime. But until then, stay local, shop local, murder local.